I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, Genesis 3 is going to be our text this morning. Obviously, we're moving through the early chapters of Genesis today. We'll actually be uh, looking at several different passages in Genesis uh, today, so we'll begin our time in Genesis 3 and read, read a familiar story. Uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Origin Stories, which, as you might expect, is all about looking back uh, at the origin of our world and, and of humanity and gaining a greater, greater appreciation and perspective and understanding of where we are today. Now, we've decided that the blessings that we enjoy now, the motivations that we live by now, the story behind our stories can be found and traced back to an earlier day, even the earliest of days, uh, as found in the book of Genesis. The inspiration for this story comes from a word from Isaiah the prophet that we looked at a few weeks ago, uh, which uh, we pulled out several different verses that I'll remind you of here in just a minute. And we've built on them as we've dove deeper into the story. Isaiah came to an Israel that had forgotten where they came from, forgotten the stories that, uh, were, that really were supposed to be their foundation for their faith and for their lives. Uh, and he reminded them, and he actually called them to look back. Uh, Isaiah told them in Isaiah 51, verse number 1, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. And then verse 13, he really hits them with a powerful word. You have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. So he calls them to look back to the very beginning and remember how they got there and, and, and how their story was a part of a, of, of a story that goes back to the very beginning. Isaiah 51 specifically calls for us to look back at creation and the things that God did and even the things that the earliest people did are caused so that we might have a better grasp on why things are the way that they are. Uh, in fact, we've learned along the way the entire reason why Genesis is in the Bible, the entire reason why God gave Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, the entire reason why God gave Moses the book of Genesis was that Israel might understand their origin story. And the reason why it's in our Bibles today is so that we might understand all these thousands of years later where we come from. Genesis was given so that we might know the why behind the current version of our world and the reality that we've been placed into. Uh, but something else that's really cool about studying Genesis, uh, you get to read about things and you get to hear about things and learn about things that remind you of our current world, but are just earlier versions of what we know. Um, sort of like prototypes for what we have, and, and a prototype is just an earlier version of something. It, it's a version that wasn't ironed out and, and it wasn't perfected, uh, and, and as, it's, as time moves on, um, it's iterated and enhanced, uh, and, and obviously we don't need the older version anymore because you have something newer, or something spiffy, or something that is more productive. Uh, when we read history of any kind, uh, we get to look back and see uh, things that kind of laid the groundwork for what we know and love and enjoy today. And, and we call these different tools, innovations, and, and technology and inventions. We refer to things from years and years ago as prototypes of what we have today. 
Um, I got to see my old friend, a, a lifelong neighbor and, and a good friend of mine, Brandon uh, Hebner. Y'all have heard me talk about him before. Um, he was down from uh, Pennsylvania. Um, he's actually getting installed into a new church today um, uh, up in, at, near Allentown. So shout out to him. But uh, he came down to celebrate his grandpa's 100th birthday a couple weeks ago. And, and, and we've always had a special connection with, with the Hebner family. Uh, Lindsay and I, our, our new home is actually right on the backside of, of their farmland. And you can see the old, uh, old home that uh, his grandpa grew up up in uh, years ago, so uh, it was always kind of a special connection there, but uh, it was really something awesome to think about, uh, and, and the reason why they were making a big deal about it, obviously, 100 years is, is a pretty amazing uh, achievement, right? Uh, we've got some uh, some awesome uh, seasoned saints here in our church, I, I won't say older, right? Seasoned as in you've been around for a while and you've seen a lot, right? I, I know Mr. Neva just turned 90 last year, my, my grandmother uh, turned 80 a few years ago, and, and many others of you, right? Uh, Y'all have had some amazing lives, and you've seen some amazing things. Um, you know, and, and the Bible actually says um, that David wrote in Psalms 90 uh, that 70 years is considered a full life. Uh, 70 years is considered a, a complete life. And anything past that, 80, 90, 100, uh, that's just icing on the cake. That's just added blessings and opportunities to serve the Lord. Um, but, but Brandon and I were talking, and we were just marveling at how much that his grandpa had got to see, and how many of you can echo this, how much the world had changed in these last hundred years and, and how much that, that people have been around for many of those and all of those uh, the, the, of that century, how much you've got to witness and, and how different things are now than they were a hundred years ago. And I'd venture to say, and, and I think that if you study history in, in a conclusive way, I venture to say that there'll never be another hundred year period in history where the start and the end looks so vastly different as these past 100 years, or at least from 1900 to 2000 or our current day. Um, you know, if you look at the trajectory of human history, uh, the development of civilization, and all the advancements made across time, there are literal thousand-year periods of history where things don't change at all. Uh, there are literal thousands of years throughout history where things look pretty much the same from one end to the other. And, and yeah, the tools they use might have changed. Uh, the different kind of material they build houses with might have changed. Uh, they may have discovered gunpowder along the way. Uh, they may have invented the printing press along the way. Uh, but the world, and, and this might be a little bit general, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch. If you go from like 4,000 B.C., to 1500 AD, the progression of civilization was very incremental. As in, the things that were different about the world from 4000 BC to 1500 AD, literally 5,500 years, there's not much that's that different between uh, that great range of, of time period. Yeah, things were tweaked and updated, but really you could drop in at any point in history at any place in the world and you wouldn't really notice that big of a difference. But from about 1500 to 1900, things start picking up the pace. Um, but by comparison, there, there has never been a rapid progression as there has been over the last 100 years. Uh, the 1800s brought the Industrial Revolution, which brought about le electricity and, and engine-based inventions, but all that hit full speed ahead when the 20th century rolled around. I mean, you, you start the century off with the Model T and the first radio, and now everybody has a microcomputer in their pocket, right? Uh, you, you start the, the, the century off trying to get a plane off the ground, and now you got billionaires just taking rockets around the, the, in the atmosphere just for fun, right? I mean, things have really progressed over the last 100 years, and, and that's not even accounting for all the cosmetic changes, uh, all the technological and scientific revolutions that have spurred across these last 100 years. It, 
And one thing that I think is really cool about all the progression that's happened in such a condensed period of time is that you can easily compare how things have changed, right? We can't, we can't talk to somebody from 1500 and talk to them about how things were back then, right? But we can talk to people, right? And, and we can even put our hands on things that have been around for the last 100 years and you can line them up side by side and you can compare just how things have changed. It's not unrealistic to have a car from 1920 sitting right beside a car from 2020. Um, And the same goes for radios, appliances, computers, phones, televisions. You can find homes with some of the older versions of these things still up and running that have been tweaked and, and, you know, took care of over the years. So, Almost every invention and product has been refined a dozen times or more over the last century. But if you started with the first version and you checked out every iteration, you could see that shared DNA. That if you put your hands on the first computer, which you could put your hands on it, it would be bigger than, it would be as tall as this building maybe. But you could see, okay, I see how that led to what I use today. You can hold the first telephone, right? And you can see how that led to where you are today. You can see that shared DNA. You're, you're able to, to see the essence of today's technology and yesterday's, you'll find a thread from the newest, fullest, realized version back to the prototype from way back long ago. So it's on that note that I want to introduce y'all to something that you maybe have heard of before. It's not original to me, but it's something that, that has been talked about throughout all the theological circles through the years, biblical circles through the years. I want to introduce you to something called the scarlet thread of Redemption, the scarlet thread of redemption. And, and here's what I want to talk to you about this this morning, particularly in reference to Genesis. Did you know, and probably you do, but maybe you haven't thought about it as deep as, as I want to take it today. Did you know that you can trace God's redeeming, enduring love all the way back to the very beginning? You know, we often associate God's love with Jesus, rightfully so. The Bible says that Jesus is the ultimate proof of God's love. He's the ultimate demonstration of God's love. But I think limiting God's love to that moment in history really forfeits the thousands of years before where God's love was just as present and maybe even more, dare I say, even more remarkable in that he was patiently enduring humanity, crescendoing and spiraling out of control, unraveling at the seams. In sin and in rebellion, God's love was present and ever enduring. Genesis is, of course, the, the, the beginning of creation story. It tells us that God made a perfect world for Adam and for Eve, for all of us to call home, a place called paradise uh, back in those days. But as we've learned, they didn't keep it as he told them to. They didn't take care of it. They didn't take responsibility for their lives. And they lost that paradise. As a result, we never got a chance to live and experience in that kind of world, in that version of earth. So they didn't just lose their homes in paradise. They became lost, fallen creatures, because sin severed their connection to God. They felt shame and sorrow as a result of their disconnect from God. And all of creation unraveled underneath humanity. And the reason that happened is God made humans the apex the center of creation. So everything was made and given to them to serve as a commodity to them. And when they rebelled against God, everything he gave them was cursed and ruined with them as in the whole world and especially the human race that would come through them. So remember, remember how we said that everything that happened in the early days of creation, everything that's written in Genesis communicates a why. 
Everything that God put in Genesis isn't just there to tell us what happened, but it's to tell us why these things happened. Why did God do this? Why did this happen the way that it happened? Now, I think you probably wouldn't be surprised to know that the fall of creation communicates a why. Now, you're probably suspecting that the why is, well, the why, it's why the world's a mess, right? The fall tells us the world's a mess because they did something to make a mess. But, but I'm talking the fall of creation tells us something about God as well. It answers the question that so many ask when you read Genesis and you see how everything is topsy-turvy, everything capsizes just a couple days in. The question that almost everybody asks at some point when they're reading the story, as at some point when you're reading Genesis 1, 2, 3, and on, the question I think everybody asks is this one. Why did God create the world if it was only going to fall away from him almost instantly? Now, there are people a lot smarter than me, get paid a lot more than me to study this stuff and write books about this all, the, all their lives, right? There are theological books stacking up from here to the sky that dives into this question. We're not going that deep, don't worry. But I think there's a question that you've, this is a question that you've all asked before, that you've all thought about before. If, if God knew, and of course God knew, if the world was going to fall away, why did he do it? I mean, have you ever thought about that question? Of course you have. Surely anyone that's ever heard the story of Genesis or read or talked about the story of Genesis, this is a question that kids ask their Sunday school teachers, right? Genesis 1 and 2 make it so clear that God, you know, gave this awesome world. He put everything into this world and he was, he was full of joy and delight as he made the world. And he put humanity at the center of the world. It was so beautiful and so perfect as it was. But... You read all that, and, and, and not knowing what comes next, you have to stop and wonder, how did this all fall apart? That if you read Genesis 1 and 2, and you didn't know what happened next, but you live today in this world, you would think, what happened? How did it go from perfect in paradise to falling apart? And then when you read about it, and you see how it all blows up, and, and, and you ask this question, God had to know this was going to happen, right? I mean, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, nothing surprises him. So why? Why would God create something so perfect and then let it all collapse? Or at least allow failure to be a possibility? Why would he make that an even option for the world? Couldn't he have prevented it? Yet it, it's clear he gave them a choice. He didn't just want robots or forced slaves. But still, it just makes you scratch your head, doesn't it? And even more perplexing, maybe also at the same time revealing, God doesn't hit reset after the fall. I mean, have you ever made such a big mess that you wish you could just hit a button and say, hey, can we rewind this? I mean, you can't do that, but God could, couldn't he? Right? I mean, you know, when you're watching a movie or watching a, a, you know, something on streaming and you can just hit that button that takes it back 15 seconds or 30 seconds or however long you want to go, take the bottom, put, put your hand on the thing and just scroll back. I mean, if anybody could do that, God could. So why didn't he? Why didn't God just say, okay, whoa, this was just a trial version. Ab and Eve, who will even remember them if I just rewind a little bit? Or hey, let's just put these guys over here and let's just start again. I mean, hey, he can make some more people out of the dirt of the ground, couldn't he? So why didn't he? And, and what's even more strange is that he doesn't start over, but he actually commits to fixing it. A mess that he didn't make. It's almost like God takes responsibility for a mess that he didn't make. And, and if you're a parent, you know what that's like. 
because you have to take responsibility for messes you don't make all the time. Right? And maybe that's a little bit of an insight to what was going on in God's heart. If you have your Bibles open, I want to read this familiar story, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. You've heard this before. We read a little bit of it last week. But just hear it. And I want you to really focus in on, from verse 8 down, how God responds to this. Now the serpent was more cunning than all the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then their eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So let's pause there. So they don't die, but spiritually, some part of them died. Because all of a sudden they feel shame. All of a sudden they feel like something is exposed that they didn't realize was there before. They go from being pure to being impure. They go from being with God to being separated from God. Now they didn't realize that was the case, but the verse 8 pretty much explains that. It was the cool of the day. They heard the, Lord, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So he did not come in the heat of the moment. He did not come as if to scold them or judge them, but they still were afraid of him. Because Adam and his wife hid themselves. So, so, so make this very clear. God did not separate himself from them. But they separate themselves from God. There's no verse in the Bible that says, God said, I don't want anything to do with these people. But something in Adam and Eve, against their own goodwill, distanced themselves from God. Funny how our nature... Seems to cause that, right? They hid themselves from God, from the presence of God, among the trees of the garden. Then verse 9, the Lord called to Adam and said, where are you? And, and, and growing up, I would hear this verse and I would think, man, I bet God's really wanting to give them a, t- to give them a word or two. I, I bet God was saying that with thunder and with anger. I mean, because you've been in trouble as a kid before and you heard your parents say, hey, where, you are, where are you? And you thought, hey, that's not going to be good when I go out and say, here I am. So we, we understand Adam was hiding from God because he, he was scared of God. But where in the story were they ever told to be scared of God? So we are, we, our, our nature thinks God must be mad at them. But that's not in the story. And clearly by what happens next, even though there are some consequences, I wouldn't call God's response angry or judgmental. Consequential, yes. Parental, yes. But not angry. So Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. So, okay, God, I feel shame. I'm exposed. I'm afraid of you because I know there's something in me that isn't like you anymore. I know there's something in me that I feel like if I get in your presence, I'll be condemned. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Of course, no one had to tell them. They felt it because that's how sin and shame works, right? You feel it. 
So he says, who told you? You were naked. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Of course, God knows what happened. God was aware of all this, but God isn't not, God's not playing with them. God's given them a chance to talk. And of course, we see what sin does to humanity right off the ground. Adam, when he says, hey, who told you you were naked? Or how did you eat? Or have you eaten? Adam doesn't step up and say, okay, yeah, God, I'm responsible. You put me in charge. Here's what happened. I didn't listen to you. Adam, being the great husband that he was, blames his wife. Because that's what sin does, right? Sin makes us not only separated from God, it makes us separated from each other, even the ones that you love the most. And Adam's initial response is, the woman that you gave me. So God, it's kind of your fault because you gave her to me. And it's definitely not my fault. It's her fault. She gave me the tree. And yeah, I ate it. I mean, she didn't force me to eat it. But it looked good. Verse 13, and the woman, Lord said to the woman, and of course Eve doesn't do any better. She says, he says, what have you done? And the woman says, well, it's not my fault. The serpent that you put in the garden and made so wise and cunning, it's his fault. And it's really kind of your fault, God, because you made the serpent so smart and so wise and so deceiving. And he's the reason. Now, again, if your parents, you know, you know how kids are. They're, they're, they think they're crafty. They think they're being, you know, cunning and, 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 you know, convincing. But you can read right through it. So God reads all through this. God knows what the real story is. And that's what makes his response so remarkable. So God, yeah, he's got a word for Adam. He's got a word for Eve. But his first word is to the serpent. And he says, serpent, because you've done this. You are more cursed than the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now we know the serpent's not just the serpent, that the devil has embodied this snake to do this deceitful work. So God's not just saying, hey, all reptiles are cursed. He's talking to the devil. And he's saying, hey, you and the woman, there's enmity, as in you're going to try to take them down, but they're going to ultimately take you down. Between you and your seed, your seed and her seed. And most of your Bibles have that, S, that, that last seed capitalized because we know who this is talking about. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God's response to this is, okay, Adam and Eve, y'all are going to have some consequences. The whole world's going to be, consequ- be affected by this. But, but leave it to me. I'm going to send y'all somebody to fix this mess. Now, not only do we ask the question, why would God clean up someone else's mess? But we ask the question, why would God waste his holy time and divine energy on a creation that from the onset failed to appreciate him and chose not to glorify him or worship him? And if we're to believe the Genesis account, uh, that it tells us this for a reason, that Genesis wants us to know these stories because they communicate something about God that we wouldn't understand otherwise, then here's where we arrive at. The purpose of the story is is so that we might know God was not surprised one bit at how things transpired in Genesis 3. God was not shocked, caught off guard. God expected it to happen exactly the way it happened. God knew it was going to happen, which again makes you think, why, how? But the moral of the story is that he delighted God delighted in every decision to prepare a perfect world, even though it would be disgraced almost immediately. 
Remember back in Genesis 1 and 2? God made it and said it was good. God made it and said it was good. God made it and it was very good. So God's enjoying this. God is excited about the prospect of this world. And he knows it's going to be disgraced immediately by the people he's putting at the very center of it. Genesis tells us that God designed these days just as they played out so that his love, here's the, here's the, the, the thesis of it, so that his love might be fully understood and completely poured out over all of creation. That's why this is in the story. That's why this is in the Bible. That's why it happened the way that it did. Think about this. We marvel at creation, especially knowing that, all, that every little detail of every little day of creation, we know so much that Genesis doesn't really tell us. It just gives us a summary. We know how intricate creation is. From the stars to the atmosphere to the ocean to the land. We, we know it and it's marvelous. We marvel at God's glory, his wonder, his power, his brilliance. But come on. Genesis 3. And the fact that there is a Genesis 4, 5, 6 and so forth. The spotlight isn't about God's power or God's wonder or God's brilliance. The spotlight from Genesis 3 on is oh what kind of love. God must have for creation that even after it spits in his face, he would still be totally, genuinely, wholeheartedly, passionately devoted to it. That's, the, that's what we marvel at from now on, isn't it? Maybe all this happened the way that it did so that God's love would be on a pedestal, so that his love would be the thing we marvel at and wonder at the most. Maybe the reason it happened the way that it happened is so that you would stop at Genesis 3.15 and say, wow, God must really love these two people. Because why else wouldn't he just say, let's rewind and reset and redo? And if he's not going to give up on these two, then who, else, who in the world wouldn't he be patient with? That's the point of the story. Think about how the Bible defines God or describes God. Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to Moses, the Bible says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. 1 John 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. I mean, when you read Genesis 3, you get a taste of just what kind of love he must have. Not just for Adam and Eve, but for all of us fallen creatures. What further proof do you need than the story that we've just talked about? Imagine, just imagine, you build a house for your kids. And you know on the first day that they move in, they're going to burn it down. Would you still build it? Of course you wouldn't. That would be a waste. It's the same reason you don't, you don't buy elaborate, expensive stuff for your children, right? Or small children, because they're just going to tear it up or, or grow out of it. But what did God do? He spared no expense, only to watch us show up and show no respect. What other explanation is there than he must love us so very, very, very much? And you know what's really, as you read the whole story... The love that God has for us is so extravagant, it's so elaborate, it's so irrational, it's so excessive, it's almost silly at times. Just how much he loves this rebellious race.
that he doesn't owe anything to. And guess what? We would never even know the story. You would never know the story of God's love if it didn't go down exactly like it did in Genesis 3. So maybe, maybe that's why it all had to go the way that it did. Maybe that's why it all happened the way that it did. So that we would know God is love with an exclusive, special, unique kind of love. When God promises to send a Savior through this fallen human race, there was no way they could possibly understand what God was promising to do. How impossible, how unlikely it would be. He would send one of his own, he would send his own son through this rebellious race, but he was dead serious, and that's exactly what he did. He takes an animal, maybe a lamb. He sacrifices it in front of Adam and Eve. He shows his patience. He clothes them in those animal skins. It says down in verse number 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living as God had just prophesied that she was going to bear the Savior. And for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Where did that tunic come from? It came from an animal that he must have sacrificed to show them what he was going to do in the future. Listen, there's no way to know the alternative. There's no way to know, but we have to conclude it was supposed to happen this way. There was no other way that we'd ever know God's love except that it happened this way. And that's the first knot in the scarlet thread of redemption. We see the conclusion on the cross, but we see that we can trace it all the way back to the very beginning. And God's telling the story to Israel and to all of us so that we would know his love isn't going to be and wasn't and isn't going to be contingent on obedience. His love is unconditional. If you want proof of it, read Genesis 3. The story starts that the message, the message is proclaimed from the very beginning against the backdrop of a fallen paradise. God wasn't phased by any of it. He didn't pause. He didn't say, oh, well, let me change my uh, plans here. Uh, he, he was ready to roll out the redemption plan almost as if it was always his plan. There's another story in Genesis that punctuates the message we read in Genesis 3 and really is the next knot in the scarlet thread. It's a story that you're all familiar with, but y'all know what happens after Genesis 3. The humanity begins to spread, and sin begins to spread, and God pursues humanity, and they rebelliously, aggressively reject him. Yet God kept pursuing, and that's really the moral of the, 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 the entire story of the Old Testament. God kept pursuing, even when the world got so violent that he was going to flood the earth to purge the evil. He still spared Noah and his family. And I want to show you something. Flip over to Genesis 9, verses 20 and 21. God brings Noah and his family through the flood, and then Noah and his family get off the boat, and it's almost like, it's almost like they repeat the Garden of Eden story. It's not exactly the same. The world's fallen. It's not perfect anymore, but it's almost like, okay, there's this new start. They get off the boat, and it's almost like the same thing happens to Noah that happened to Adam it's like, did you learn anything? But even this was an opportunity for God to make his love known even more. Look at Genesis 9, verses 20 and 21. It says, they got off the boat. The earth was being populated. Noah became a farmer and planted a vineyard. So we see there's a little bit of a connection between the Garden of Eden and this new garden that Noah's planting. So we have Adam in a garden, Noah in a garden. And Adam ate the forbidden fruit, but what does Noah do? He drinks the wine from one of the vines, and he gets drunk, and he is uncovered in nakedness. Haven't you heard that story before? Adam takes of the forbidden fruit, he eats it, 
He's naked and he's in shame. Noah takes of the fruit of the vine more than he should or in a way that he wasn't supposed to. He's naked. He's ashamed. Again, God's trying to start fresh. Here's what he's got to work with. The same messy people. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Yet God doesn't say, okay, I tried once, didn't work, tried twice, no, you know, one, you know, Tried to fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, God could have said that. That, could, that should have been Genesis 9, 22. You know? And God said, fool me twice. I'm done. But that's not what it says, is it? In fact, there's not just a Genesis 9 and 10. It goes on, right? So one of, one of Noah's great, 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 great grandsons is a guy named Abraham. God picks Abraham to do something special through. I want you to flip over to Genesis 22 as we begin to wrap up. God picks Abraham to start a nation through. So the world gets populated. There's all kind of nations, all kind of different false religions and different idols that, that are being worshipped as people are trying to explain the world and figure out what's going on. So God picks Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to start a nation through you and through you I'm going to bring this promise that I made to Eve to reality. That you're going to be the father of a nation. That nation's going to bring revelation of God to the world, and through that nation, I'm going to bring the Savior that I promised. Now, Abraham is in his 90s. He has no kids. Sarah is in her 90s, has no kids. Finally, at age 100, Abraham's a dad. Sarah's right behind him. They're, they're parents. He gives them a son called Isaac. But then the story goes that God is going to test Abraham in a way that seems odd and even cruel. In Genesis 22, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering as one, as one of the mountains, on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And the story goes that Abraham gets up early in the morning, spends three days traveling to this mountain, Isaac's with him. They get to the foot of the mountain, and Isaac says, down in verse number 7, he says, Dad, we've got the wood for the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, son, my, said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. But y'all know the story. Abraham gets to the top of the mountain. He wraps Isaac up. He puts him on the altar. Of course, Isaac's probably crying and, and, and saying what in the world's going on. And, you know, we don't know if Abraham really believes that God's going to provide or if he's just doing what you would do as a parent and just hoping that he doesn't get caught in a lie. Because, hey, wouldn't you try to make the best of it that you could? Now, Abraham, of course, had faith. Surely he believed God would, but we don't know. God said, hey, go do this. So all he knows is that God's going to tell him to do this and make him do this. So it says that Abraham lifts up the knife and then verse 12, an angel calls to him and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the lad or any, do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes up and saw and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, we know what this is a picture of, don't we? 
It was on this very spot that David would build the temple or would set the stage for his son to build the temple. David purchased this land because he knew this was the mountain that Abraham had did this or almost did this on. But we know that on the mount, next to this mountain, a part of the same mountain range, was a smaller hill. Next to Mount Moriah was a place called... Let's back up a few. A place called Mount... Calvary. And it was on there that God would truly fulfill his promise. He provided a lamb. Look at, look at number, verse number two. Have you, haven't you heard a verse like this before? Take your son, your only son whom you love, and give him away. Doesn't that remind you of, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. So I know, this, I know the Bible says this was a test to Abraham, but don't you think it's more than that? Don't you think that it's not so much a test about what Abraham was willing to do, but a preview of, a, of what God would actually do? Because y'all know what that God actually did, right? We know that this wasn't as much about... Abraham loving God or how much Abraham loved God but it was to show how much God really loved Abraham and of course us and that is the message of the Bible 1 John 4 and this is love not that we have loved God anybody that ever brags about how much they love God and have done for God tell them to pipe down a few because that's not what the whole thing's about oh we, we've done something for God <laughs> that's not what love is Love is that he has loved us, right? That's the heart of the gospel. Christianity isn't about what we do. What God has done, this is how God loves you. That he sent his son to be atonement for your sin. To be a sacrifice for your sin, for our sin. So why is this story in Genesis? Why are there so many stories like this preserved for us? So that you might know how far God is willing to go. How deep and how wide and how rich his love is for you. The scarlet thread runs all the way through the Bible from the very beginning. There are these reminders, these previews of just what kind of love God has for us. Turn a few more pages to Genesis 38. I'll show you a couple more verses that, are, that punctuate this. In Genesis 38, there's a dark, twisted story of one of Isaac's grandsons named Judah. Now, you know Judah as being the one of his brothers that was the chosen. He was the one that God was going to send the Savior directly through, his tribe. Judah is the tribe of David, and, and of course, David is where Jesus comes from. So Judah is supposedly the greatest one of the twelve. He's the guy. Well, the Bible tells us that Judah gets in a morally compromised situation, let's call it. And then he's going, he thinks he's going to get out of it. He thinks he's not going to get exposed. But turns out the, the, the lady that he had a little fling with is pregnant with twins. And Judah being the leader of the village, the leader of the land, Judah says, you know what? We can't have sinful women like this. We're just going around doing what they're, you know, because she was, was a prostitute or, and, and, and you know, nobody knew that he had been with her. But she knows. And Judah says, we should burn this woman at the stake. And, and, and she says, hey, Judah, you wouldn't want to burn your children with me, would you? And then Judah says, can we have a minute? And she says, I know you might not recognize me, 
but I'm going to have your kids, two kids. And down in Genesis 38, in verse number 27, this lady named Tamar, it came to pass at the time for giving, it was the time for her giving birth, the twins in her womb. Verse 28, and so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand. Now they did that to see who was the oldest, but this is another reminder that God's redemption is on every page. That God was going to use this forbidden, taboo relationship to just be the next chapter in the redemption story. Because it was through these kids that Jesus would eventually come into the world. Isn't that remarkable? I think we often associate God's love being displayed in the finished work of redemption, but I think it's important that we see that God's love was there from the very beginning. That God's love is not the result of redemption, it's the cause of it. That the reason why God would go through the trouble to redeem the world is because he loved us from the very beginning. Love wasn't a backup plan. That when God gave Israel the land of milk and honey and they wasted it, they blew it, they, they, they didn't keep it, they didn't honor him. And when God sold them into to slavery to the Babylonians, the prophet Jeremiah told them, the Lord appeared to those that were far away, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I mean, do you get just what kind of love God has for his people at this point? Everlasting So that we might can confidently say, nothing can separate us from God's love. If you want a passage that really underscores that, highlights that, I encourage you to read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Some of you have read this passage before. Some of you can quote this passage. But just a couple of verses say things like, what can separate us from God's love? Nothing, right? The Bible says that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? How much is God for you that he was willing to give you this life knowing that you would blow it just so that you might know just how much he loves you? Because you might not know how much he loves you if you hadn't first blown it and made a mess of it. You know, God was willing to lose you once. God was willing to see you born into sin you know why? Because he was convinced that once we felt the riches of his love and the poverty of our sin, we would never leave again. God's love is the source of our salvation, the source of our victory, the source of true holiness. No one is truly going to live for God simply out of fear. Fear motivates somebody for a little while, but it won't last. Some pretend to live for God out of their own pride, using God to feel good about themselves, but that doesn't last either. Only God's love will truly capture our affection and change our lives. It's God's love that makes us conquerors against sin and shame, against our struggles. We understand his love is everlasting. We can never be severed. The Spirit of God uses that promise to compel us to live for him. I will always err on the side of preaching God's love because it's the only proven truth that actually changes people for life. We've learned how much God loves us, but the question is, the question is, 
Have you let God love you? Have you heard this message of God's love and have you let him love you and shine his love into your heart? Do you personally and intimately know how much he loves you? All this is just words if you don't let God speak to you. At first, it may convict us. At first, it may, it may make us uh, have to challenge and overcome some things, but that's because God wants to replace all of that sin and shame and sorrow with his everlasting love. Before we go, I want you to, if you want to turn with me, I want you to bookmark at least Ephesians, 4, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. This is a prayer that Paul prayed over the Ephesians. And I want to read it to you. And I want you to adopt this passage even for yourselves this week as a prayer that you will pray. Listen to the words that Paul prays over the Ephesians. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for whom the whole family in heaven is named after, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the might through his spirit in the inner man. So he's saying, I, I pray that this would open the heart of everyone, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints the width and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And he says, if you know that love and how wide and deep and long and high, then you'll see the power of God work in your lives. Only then. According to Paul, the only true source of God's power is his love. And as we've witnessed today, the scarlet thread is the undercurrent promise, presence, and power of God since the very beginning. His love is why he said, let there be. His love is why he lets any of us be. As broken as we may be, his love will always be enough. If you feel like God is trying to call you into a richer and deeper relationship, if you feel like God is trying to get you to let him love you, would you consider, would you consider surrendering to him openly, humbly, and willingly today? Whether at an altar or whether where you're sitting today, would you, and I think all of us could do this in a greater way, would you open your heart to God's love? Or maybe some of you, you've let it in, a, you've, you've cracked the door. Would you open it wide? Would you let God love you and the sin that you struggle with, the shame that you deal with, the sorrow that you harbor in your heart? Would you let the love of God, because listen, if we've learned anything today, God has an elaborate, extravagant, amazing love for you. There's nothing that will ever change that and nothing that will ever undo that. And there's nothing you can do. Ask Adam, ask Noah, ask anybody that came before us. There's nothing we can do to cause him to love you any less. He loves you so much that he gave Jesus to set you free from your sin. He's been at work in this creation to get you to open up to him. We are here because of his love so that you might know the riches, the depth, and the fullness of his love for you. Would you open your heart to God's love today and trust that he loves you so very much that you can put your faith in what he's done for you and you can have the promise, the presence, and the power of God in your heart because Jesus is the ultimate proof. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God loves you. Would you let him love you today? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the reminder of your love. 
Lord, I don't know what people's motives are today. There might be someone here today, they, they live out of fear. Maybe they live out of their own sense of pride. But Lord, would you help them to open their hearts up to your love and to be, to anchor their faith in the love that you have had for all of us, the love that was there at the very beginning, the love that allowed us all to fall away so that we might would see that you are the way the love that allowed us to be born into this sinful world, that we might would open our eyes up to the promise, the power, and the presence of Jesus. Lord, I pray that everybody here today, I don't care what they've done, where they've been, and, and what, what someone in this world might be holding over them. Would you remind them and would you proclaim to them that you love them and that nothing can separate them from your love and that you are for them. And no matter what might be against them, even if they feel like their own heart is against them, their own mind is against them, you are greater than that and they can be more than conquerors through the love that you put in their hearts. Lord, fill us with your love today. Show us just how much you love each and every individual one that we might find in you the life that we want so dearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.